those are found in Revelation 16. We've looked at uh, vials 1 through 5 as we've, we've already gone through the study. And actually my goal tonight is kind of to wrap that up because when we do that, it's like the last of the heavy stuff. <laughs> Revelation's pretty heavy. We've been through. We've seen some things that kind of stretches our brain for sure. And as we uh, finish up with these last two bowls, we're going to get into some very familiar territory and uh, some of the most majestic passages of Scripture, uh, in my opinion. So just to bring back to, to memory as we're looking over these vials, as we're going through, they're called the seven last plagues, the vials of wrath, of the wrath of God in it's as God is pouring out His full and final wrath on uh, sinful man, man's uh, rebellion against God, man's efforts against God, and all of that's going to be brought down as God does that. And we saw some really similarities to the ten plagues of Egypt. There's a lot of kind of similarities that you can draw um, as that was God's judgment on the known world then. I'm not going to take time to go back through them. I just want to kind of bring that back to your memory. Yes, this is God's wrath being poured out. Um, wrath that He's held in for a long time. He's been very merciful and is merciful with the world. In Romans chapter 2 tells us the mercy of God is meaning to lead us to repentance. We should see how good God is to us and then see His gracious nature and be led to repentance, even in the face of outright rebellion. But as this will be towards the end and close of time, God will finally pour it out and let it go. So we've looked at vials 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. I want to pick up in verse 6, or excuse me, vial 6, and that's going to be in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. We'll read down through verse 16, Revelation 16, 12 through 16. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty." Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So this one's quite different. Uh, the others deal with destruction. There's stuff falling or rivers turning to blood or you've got sores on man. You've got all kinds of things going on in the other ones. This one seems to be a little different. It shifts gears a little bit and it's pretty packed. I mean, you've got a river, the river Euphrates that dries up. You've got these unclean spirits that are like frogs that do a specific duty. And you've got Armageddon or the gathering together into the place called Armageddon. And all of that's pretty symbolic of, of the close of things. So let's just kind of work through those things and see what they mean for us. I want to start with the river. I introduced this last time. If you look through the Bible, the river Euphrates runs all the way through it. I mean, from Genesis and the Garden. It's one of the rivers mentioned in the Garden of Eden. 
And it is mentioned many times throughout Scripture. And here in Revelation, at the end of the close of the writing of Scripture, it's mentioned again. So this is a pretty important place. And there's some pretty important uh, things that happen along it. There's some pretty important kingdoms. The one we would be most familiar with is Babylon. The city of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, was built over the river Euphrates. The river ran, ran under it. It was one, a city that spanned the river. In fact, how Babylon fell to the Persians during Daniel's time was the Persians diverted the water till it went down below the walls. The Persians walked in during the Feast of Bel- Belshazzar, you know, the writing on the wall and all that. While that's all going on, they diverted the river. They walk under the walls and just march right into the city and take it over. So all that to say, it's, it's not just some river that's pulled out of script uh, pulled out of nowhere it's in scripture so it says there in verse 12 the great river euphrates the water was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared what on earth does that mean what is he talking about so is it literally going to dry up so the kings can come across it in old days that would have to be the case right if it's a big enough river, you're not crossing with an army. You're walking up and down until you find a place or you're going to try to build a bridge or something or sail across it. But it's not going to be easy just to go right across it. So is this a literal drying up? And I mentioned an article I read that says, yeah, it's kind of drying up slowly. And there's reports that within the next, and this was written in 2018, within the 2020s, there'll be no water in it at all during the summertime. So is that what it's talking about? Like, is that river literally going to dry up? Well, it could be. I mean, um, it could be. But I also think when we read Revelation, we need to think two ways. First is literal. And I always read Revelation as literal. This is written. John sees some specific things. So when he writes it, I try to take, is that what he's really seeing? So there's a literal interpretation. Is the river really going to dry up? It could, and then it, it makes a pathway for whoever's going to come across it. Or could it be figurative? So you've got literal and you've got figurative. Like, is this a type of something else? Like the beast with seven heads and ten horns, if you kind of remember back to when we were talking about that, is the Antichrist. Well, is he this literal monster that has seven heads? No, it's talking. it's a symbolic figurative picture of the governmental power that this man is going to have it's going to have all of this government power be like in power like uh, the rome the roman empire was and so that part of it's figurative right so we need to think along those two lines i I came across this explanation that makes a lot of sense is it any problem for somebody to cross a river nowadays no they get a big boat and go across it or they build a bridge or no it's no problem for any king who wants to cross the river euphrates it's not like that half of the continent over there is cut off from coming this way because of the river euphrates now they build a bridge across it they'll do whatever they need to do but it becomes interesting when you begin to look at a map i should have put the projector up and everything so if you look at the middle east on a map of course, as you're looking at it, you'll see Israel down here on this side of the coast. And the river Euphrates runs kind of through that land this way. 
So it's, it's a natural border. And it's interesting as you begin to look at the nations that have been along the Euphrates or on the other side of the Euphrates, some of those names begin to kind of pop out. Babylon, Assyria, Iran, Moab, yeah. Nations that were not good, right? Evil nations. And for a very, very long time, even to this day you could say, there was that line, a line of protection between nations that wanted to take over Israel and the river barred them from that. It's like uh, of a dividing line of a protection between good and evil. And could this be that this symbolic drying up of that natural protection, that natural barrier, is speaking more about the tone of society? That there is going to be a blurring of lines of good and evil? A breaking down of some natural barriers so that God's people then are open more to attack and the kings of the east do whatever they want. Just think about it. Um, I believe Jesus says, iniquity, oh man, I'm going to butcher that quote. Um, Lawlessness will grow worse and worse as the time comes. I'm not even going to try to find it. Paul says there's going to come a great falling away in the Last days, perilous times shall come. Um, people are going to be lovers of themselves, high-minded, all those things he says in First and Second Timothy as well. The Bible speaks about the last days being a time when there is no uh, uh, clear line between good and evil. You think that's true in our day? Pretty much is, isn't it? So I was thinking about this. How, how did that happen? Because today... Today it's subjective truth, right? Your truth is truth to you. And my truth is truth to me. Don't try to step on my toes. Don't try to tell me my truth is good for me. There is no such thing in the minds of many today as objective truth. Like this is truth, period. doesn't matter what you say. Like the Bible, right? We hold the Bible up as objective truth. This is truth, period. Take it or leave it, this is what it is, and we must conform to that. People reject that. They say it's their own truth, and so that's why we got kind of all the stuff that's going on, and uh, people calling good wrong and wrong good. I tried to figure out where the breakdown of that was. What what happened? (laughs) I think my grandpa's generation was raised a certain way, right? There was a job to do. You had to work on the farm. Most people lived on a farm. You you don't got time to talk back. You don't got time to rebel against anything. You want to eat, you're getting out there and plowing corn or wheat or whatever you're doing. You're working around the house. There wasn't social media. There wasn't even, I don't know, was there telephones back then? Maybe. It was like a telephone, and you're lucky if you, yeah, rotary. No, that was on the wall. Hello? You know, you're talking way back when. When there wasn't all these distractions, life was more simple. 
Well, then my grandpa's generation raised my dad's generation. Well, you know, when he grew up, he grew up. It was in during the '60s and the '70s, and kind of a, a revolution that took place. <laughs> well, you have within that generation a sort of rebellion, and you, I think you had two types of people that came out of it: those that that continued on and, and raised up their children in a right upbringing, and then those who kind of went a, a liberal fashion. That brings to me. And I'll say probably for the most part, there's a, there's a good number of us who have raised our kids to respect good and evil and right and wrong and, and raised our kids to believe the Bible or at least morality. Listen, I, I know people my age who've raised their kids that don't believe in God, but they have a sense of morality and of right and wrong, and they've raised their kids to do that, and I commend them for that. But I say the vast majority of us millennials, that's the everybody wins, nobody loses, everybody gets a trophy, and let your kids sit there on the floor and scream because we don't want to hurt the kids' feelings, and we don't spank, and we don't do time out, and blah, blah, blah. You know, you know the type, right? That's the generation that's out there doing what they're doing. That's what it has produced. And as they raise their kids, it's just going to be a... A step down. It's always been a step down, right? From my grandpa to my dad to me to Matthew. Hopefully he's being raised right. And Matthew's generation and, and those in between, you know, different age groups. But it's, it's been on a, a decline to where the, the, the lines of what is moral and right. Homosexuality is a sin according to the Bible. And it was widely accepted as that. I can remember in my lifetime where it was widely accepted that that was wrong. That line is blurred now, isn't it? And it's everywhere. It's not surprising for me to run into a gay person or a lesbian or, or whatever name they want to take. It's not surprising to me now. I've become used to it because that line has been blurred and it's just normal. Now it's the transgender or the whatever it is coming down the line next. Those lines are getting blurred, and the natural, the natural um, barriers against that are dropping. I say that because this. At one time, in society as a whole, whether it was Christian or not, people would not accept an antichrist. didn't matter what he looked like. Anything that looked like a mark of the beast or a, a microchip or whatever, anything that, that rang a bell like that, society as a whole would say, no, 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 no. We're moving to a society that flat out don't give a rip. 666 on my forehead, put it there. I don't care. We're going downhill to one of, of just utter immorality. That's going to prepare some things, isn't it? I think maybe that's kind of what this is getting at. The barriers are going to be dropped. They're just going to dry up. And the kings of this world are going to do whatever they want. Under the leadership of the Antichrist. Just something to consider. But all of this is leading, with, uh, leading the way towards the ultimate deception. And I want to talk about that in just a, a minute. So that's my take on verse 12. Maybe the uh, water literally dries up and that, that allows people to come and try to attack Israel or to do whatever. I think maybe it's more on the symbolic line of the, the barrier, the barrier of, of just you, the next barrier to drop 
will be acceptance of pedophilia. You watch that. The next barrier to drop that has stood rock solid for a long time and seems to be standing solid with some, the next one to drop will be the widespread acceptance or forced acceptance of pedophilia. That's just on the way, that's the way we're on. You see, when things like that are accepted, the man of sin can come on the scene and do whatever he wants because the hearts of men are so utterly, totally depraved. There is no societal morality to restrain it, right? It's already accepted, so he can do what he wants. That's my take on verse 12. Now let's look at verse 13 and 14 and talk about these frogs. What is, what's going on with this? Verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. Who's the dragon? Anybody know who the dragon is? Satan, right? So every time you see that in the book of Revelation, that's Satan. Comes out of the mouth of Satan, out of the mouth of the beast. Remember the beast, Romans, or Revelation chapter 13, the beast is the Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. You see the source and you see the number, right? Three unclean spirits, one from Satan, one from uh, the Antichrist, and one from the false prophet. And all have the same message of deception. And I think this is a unified, uh, well, right here you have the satanic trinity, don't you? We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we have uh, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. He's a bad copycat, by the way. Everything Satan does is so unoriginal. He's just a ripoff. I <laughs> He's trying to copy God. He's trying to be God. He can't even come up with his own stuff, so he tries to rip off God's stuff, and he rips off the Trinity here, and, and uh, the best he can do with the Holy Spirit is a frog. <laughs> if he can try to make a spirit that moves on the face of the earth to try to influence people, it's a frog, and it's unclean, and it's dirty, and it's got a dirty message. It says it's a message of deception. Think about frogs. I tried to... We went up to vacation um, to Klamath, last, the last one we were on. And one of the fun things to do in the forest is try to chase frogs, right? If you go out at night, you see them hopping everywhere. They're little bitty ones, or maybe you can see the big old toads hopping around. So, you know, take the dog out to go to the bathroom, and you take a flashlight, and you search for frogs. Well, Caitlin found one that's about that big, the nasty, slimy ones with the real pointed nose. She wanted it. (laughs) So, of course, Dad was with us. He went and he got, he got it. Put it in a shoebox and poked holes and put it outside the, the, the trailer so the dog didn't need it, you know. I was very happy the next morning that the frog was gone out of the box and I didn't let it out so I couldn't get blamed for it. But the inside of the box is all slimy and nasty. It's gross. Frogs are gross. They're, they're fun to listen to, but other than that, I don't want to touch them. I don't want to get near them. It's gross. 
That's the kind of message that goes out. The filthy message. They hop everywhere, right? Kind of like uh, a sinful message. Spreads like wildfire. Right? The sound is ugly to some people. They swell up. You ever seen them do that when they croak? Kind of like a human with pride, right? When he talks against God. A bunch of people walking around talking about God. It's a message of human pride. And it comes from them and it goes throughout the whole world. And what is the goal? They gather them together to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Verse 16, He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Armageddon. This message that goes out, the way is prepared for this message, okay? Barriers are dropped. The message goes out. It's a message of filthy human pride. And it's deceptive, and it's from Satan. And what is the goal of the message? Whatever the message is, it gathers people together to do battle with God. What has been Satan's goal from the get-go? What did he say in Ezekiel and Isaiah? I will be like Most High, right? Which means he wants to displace him, wants to take him out of the way. I will sit as Most High, right? He's going to deceive man into thinking man can kill God. Why else do you go to battle? To defeat your enemy, right? To kill your enemy. You don't go there with pea shooters or marshmallow guns. You go with heavy artillery to obliterate and kill the enemy. Do you understand that? There's coming a day when mankind, flesh and blood, will gather together at this place called Armageddon to do battle with God. That's insane. We're going to roll up in their tanks? Probably. And their helicopters, and their AK-47s or M-16s or AR-15s, whatever. I, maybe we're maybe we'll be way more advanced. They're rocket launchers and bazookas, and we're gonna we're gonna kill God. We've we've had enough of him, enough of this Bible, enough of these Christians walking around everywhere. We tried to kill them, mark of the beast, Antichrist, right? We tried to kill them. We're going to the source. That's insane. It's literally going to be a battle against Jesus. Armageddon is only found right here. The word Armageddon is only found right here in Scripture. It's a Hebrew word. It's, he, it, it's from the Hebrew word, the Valley of Megiddo. Okay? There, there's a lot of things that happen there. Important battles throughout Old Testament history. So it's been a battleground for a long time. But this is where the final battle is going to take place. So, semi-final. How do I put that? Because there's one that happens at the end of the millennial reign, too. But this happens here. It's one of the final battles. Let's put it that way. 
And it's a literally a battle against Jesus. Look in chapter 17. Chapter 17 and verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb. So we, have, we, we read a verse like that and we tend to spiritualize it, right? They're making war with the Lamb like on an intellectual level. They're trying to stamp out the message. I think it's physical. There's going to be people, rulers on this earth, that will try to make war with Jesus. Verse, uh, chapter 19 and verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. Sound familiar to the making the way of the kings of the east, right? I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Well, just a little sneak peek. It's Jesus on the horse, and the army is his church, his bride. We're going we're gonna to get we're gonna get some judgment in, too, some retribution in, too. Anyways, it's physical, right? I'm, I'm not... I, I, I'm not making nothing, making something out of that, right? That's very physical. The armies are gathered together to make war with Jesus. Does that, maybe it's just me, that blows my mind. How foolish we are. We think we're going to kill God. And that's, we don't need much help to get there, right? We already try to do it, don't we? We already put ourselves above God. The Bible tells us to do something. We say, nope. What is that doing? Did the Bible really say that? You know who said that? Satan. Did God really say that? We're already doing the same kind of things uh, in our own hearts. This is just the full and final um, end of it. We got to kill God, we, the source. If we, if we get rid of Him, then this means nothing. Those Christians and the church and salvation and Jesus and the cross, that means nothing if we take Him out. And they're going to they're gonna try. That's sad, man. That is sad. That is ultimate human delusion. That is satanic delusion. He himself is deluded. To think he can stand against God. I, 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 don't, I don't know how this will sound. I used to think he was pretty smart. He, I believe Satan knows the scripture. He knows it better than us. I think he knows his end. He knows what's coming. But there's still that pride within him that's going to make him foolish enough to try something like this even though it's prophesied, even though he knows exactly what's going to come from it and what's going to happen after that, and ultimately the end, he's still going to try. That is the foolishness of pride and self-delusion. That's where it will lead you. And that's where it's this message that goes out from these three, this satanic trinity, is just going to tie up all of the loose ends of man's pride and let's go and do what we've been hinting around at, Let's do what we've been playing around at. Let's try to get rid of God once and for all. And they go to Armageddon. There's not much stuff falling from the sky. 
There's no plagues here. It's preparation. It's as if anything that would stand in the way for what's about to happen has now been leveled. And check it out in verse 15. See those words? Anybody got a red letter Bible? Are they red? Right in the middle of that, Jesus speaks. Behold. You know what behold means? Check it out. Pay attention. Check it out, guys. I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. The way is being prepared. The final message is going out to gather all of men to go against God. Hey, check it out, guys. I'm going to come as a thief. Be watching. Now, either John wrote this way out of context, and maybe a little piece of the scroll earlier fell off and somehow got glued here. Because basically, let me take a step back. Jesus is kind of saying, hey, when you see this, get ready. When you see the way being prepared and you see the world gathering itself, be watching because I'm coming quickly and be ready. So either John wrote this in a totally wrong place and it's like a major accident of placement because wasn't Jesus supposed to come back before all of this happened? If there's a pre-tribulation rapture, we're way deep in it, like at the end, for Jesus to be saying, hey guys, check it out, I'm coming soon. Be ready. Keep your garments. Don't be ashamed. Or it's exactly right where it should be. And Jesus is about to return and gather His people to Him. Because if it is, as we'll see here in just a couple verses, it all lines up. Seal 6. Trumpet 7, vial 7. And what happens right before that, Jesus is saying, hey, check it out. You know what grace that is right there? If you and I are blessed enough to live and see these things come to place, come to pass, when we see things like this, verses like that right there, Revelation 16, 15, we're going to hold on to for dear life. He said it's going to be soon. He said it's going to be soon. So let's look at the seventh vial and finish this up. Seventh vial, verse 17, Revelation 16, 17. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple from the throne, excuse me, from the temple of heaven, from the throne, saying, It is done. <laughs> I love that. It is done. Literally, it is here. There were voices and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were on the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. It is done. Seventh vial comes. It is here. 
And then notice what happens. A giant earthquake. That should ring some bells by now. A giant earthquake, such as has never been before. Well, doesn't Joel talk about an earthquake? Doesn't Matthew chapter 24 talk about an earthquake? Seal 6, trumpet number 7, the earthquake that signals the return of Christ and the gathering of His elect? I think it's here. Another marker. It's right here. Jesus comes. We see Babylon destroyed. The kingdom of the beast is broken up. The cities of the nations fall. There's major destruction worldwide from this. Verse 20, every island fled away. Mountains were not found. (laughs) I I like the language of the Bible. Where's the mountain? I don't know. They're gone. Flat. Just knocks everything flat. And then we've got, in verse 21, this hail that weighs anywhere from 100 to 200 pounds. Can you imagine the destruction that would make on top of everything else that's already happened? There's no mistaking. It is done. It is here. The day of the Lord has arrived and He has come. With that, we're going to take a step away from the heavy symbolic stuff and get to some of the most, what I see in Scripture, the most majestic, the most glorious portions of Scripture, some of the greatest things you can ever read this side of heaven. Part of why it's so glorious is because some of the things we've been talking about is pretty bleak, isn't it? It's it's heavy. It's death and destruction and it weighs you down. I mean, the earth is in tatters. Man has gathered in hatred towards God. They're they're, they're facing Him in uh, defiance, looking to take Him down. You've got His people looking up for redemption. The scene is so bleak, and what we're going to start talking about, or at least introduce tonight, start talking about, is so bright and glorious. Part of the glory of these next chapters is the clarity, because here and there, as we've gone through Revelation, it's been hinted at. I've had to, tell, I've had to show you, like, okay, look, line these scriptures up, that's the return of Christ there. Line these scriptures up, trumpet number seven, at the last trump, all that, remember? Boom, right there. There's, there's, there's another reference to it. You've got a reference here and you've got a reference there. We just saw in uh, vial number seven, there's a reference. It is here, it's done, the earthquake and all that. Okay, there's another reference. But what we're going to read is explained in depth and in clarity. There's no guessing. We don't have to kind of pull here and there. No, it's so beautifully put right in front of us. But perhaps why some of my favorite scriptures is because of the hope that it gives. Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22 are some of the most hope-filled chapters in the Bible because it tells you what's coming. It tells you what we have to look forward to. It tells you all of the beauty of it, all of the peace and all of the hope and You've got phrases like, there shall be no more curse. (laughs) All we know is the curse. 
the deepest we get with God in here is still tinted and tinged by the curse. The depths of grace, the depths of mercy, the heights of joy as great as we can ever know. The depths of love is still tainted by the curse and sin. We don't know what it's like to be sinless. You understand? But there's coming a day when we will be sinless. The curse is gone. And so all of the effects of sin will not be there. That's hope, isn't it? You know what it's like. You try to get close to God and you want to read, at least for me as a pastor, it's like, I, I just, it feels like there's a wall. <laughs> I can't get past it. And I know there's more. There's so much more to know about God. I want to be close to Him. And there's, there's moments in my life that I feel it, right? But it just, it's like there's something holding me back. That's the curse. That's our sin nature. And there's coming a day when that's gone and we'll be with Him and we'll know Him and we'll keep on learning about Him for eternity and it will, we'll never be satisfied because there's so much to know. Oh, man. Some of the most hope-filled chapters in the Bible is what we're going to take a step into. The promises here have guided and shaped and captivated people's lives for 2,000 years. Longer, if you see the shadows of them in the Old Testament. But with the clarity that we have in Revelation, that's captivated people's lives. People went to be burned at the stake because of what was written in Revelation. They watched their children burned at the stake. Their children murdered. Their children taken from them. Their families taken from them because of the hope in Revelation 19 through 22. And it's guided your life too, hasn't it? To some extent, if you're paying attention, if you care, I mean, if you love this world more, that stuff ain't going to mean squat to you. It's going to be boring to you. You're going to look at it and say, oh, that's what we're going to do? Better get your head right. No, this is eternity. It talks about a life that we can only imagine. We've only given, been given just a taste of here. And it guides us, right? There's a reason. There's a reason I go to church. There's a reason I read the Scripture. There's a reason I do my best to be a witness. And it's not to have any kind of medals on my chest like a, a, a merit badge. No, it's for that. It's for what's coming because of what promises are given. Because of these chapters, you can look and know it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. So turn to Revelation chapter 19. So I'm sure this study hasn't been the easiest to listen to. I'm sure it has not been the most exciting. It's probably been heavy, uh, mind-blowing. Think of me. I have to study and come up with it and teach it. <laughs> in a way that maybe halfway makes sense, okay? Think of John as he sat there and saw this and tried to wrote it down. We've spread this out over a couple months. John sees this probably over hours or days. As he sees it, he's trying to write down what happens. You know, you know the, the weight at times that it's placed on us, right? There's some, there's some high points, but man, there's a lot of death. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot, there's a lot happening. There's a lot of scary things that are waiting, right? You know the weight that it can, it can 
put on your heart or on your mind. You've got this, the timeline unfolding. You've got the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and the reign and oppression of Antichrist and all these things coming in and out of focus as John is writing about them, all, all kind of popping up here and there and passing before us in rapid fire. And all of it, we know all of it is pointing towards Christ and His return, right? That's the culmination of it. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So He's the goal. Through all of it, He's the goal. That, where's the goal? <laughs> if you're reading Revelation 1 and you come to the end of chapter 18, maybe you're a little bit like John. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear the goal right now. Because it, it's been hinted at, and I know He's controlling it, but what's it all going to end like? And then it comes. You ever walk out of a, you're staying in the mountains and you, the house gets too hot and you open the door and go out in the snow and you feel that blast of air just wakes you up, takes you back? That's what Revelation 19 is. Or those majestic sights that you kind of sit there and soak in. I remember sitting on an island in Lake Jackson in the Grand Tetons. And the lake was so still, you just you take a ferry out there and then they serve you breakfast and you get to see the Tetons reflected in. It's like a mirror. These massive mountains and you see wildlife everywhere. You just sit. You don't say anything. You just sit. Wow. Or Bryce Canyon. Some of you just experienced that. You walk over that ledge and it drops away and you see, when I was there, the, there was snow, but you see these m m marvelous peaks and you can see for miles and it's just this, it's breathtaking. And you sit there and you don't say anything, you just say, wow. Or the Grand Canyon, there's places I've, I've walked to the edge of the Grand Canyon and just looked and it's, man, that's what these chapters are. It gets everything right in your head and it, it gets your mind thinking. So after all of this heaviness, let me just end with this point. After all of this heaviness, what John sees next um, is that blast of fresh air. It is that that majestic sight revelation 19 1 after these things i heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying hallelujah salvation glory and honor and power unto the lord our god he sees heaven explode with praise it is done it is here he is here he's come to gather his faithful people to himself he's come to rule as king supreme and heaven explodes with praise because of that and it's, it's not going to be a passing glance, no. We're going to stay focused like a laser on Jesus and His kingdom and His people for the rest of this book. He hears a great voice, literally in Greek. Great is mega, voice, phone, megaphone. <laughs> so you can imagine this is going to be loud. And the word for people... Um, how do I explain this? I don't know if you've ever been at a crowd. The example I'm going to give is probably not very holy. But you've ever been at a crowd and see a mass of people moving once, like a mosh pit. I don't know if you've ever seen that on, on TV, where it's this massive group of people and they move as one. 
That's what the, the word for people is. This massive group is people that are speaking as one and moving as one with a singular message. Listen, I've been some pretty loud places. I've been to monster truck rallies. That's loud. I've been to drag racing. Stood pretty close to the um, starting line. You know, when they take off, your eyeballs will shake. And you could feel it in your chest. It feels like somebody's hitting you in the chest. And you, you, ha- you have to have earphones on. It's not going to happen anywhere else. It's pretty loud. But the loudest place I've been, one that I could say was deafening, was a George Strait concert. The, and it was only a few thousand people, six, seven, maybe eight. It was in Fresno, in the middle of Fresno, of all places. And he walked out on that stage. And the people started screaming. The level got up, and then it almost went to silence. I, I couldn't hear. It was deafening. You ever heard sign, uh, uh, sound so loud it's deafening? I experienced that. It's like it almost starts to go silence, and it's, it's disorientating. That's what I imagine this being. A voice so loud and so mighty, praising God, all of heaven praising God. It's going to be deafening. And what they say first, hallelujah. How many people are singing the song? The hallelujah chorus we always make fun of. By the way, that's a really good song. Because you know what that, that hallelujah chorus? It's revelation. Put to music. In fact, it's verse 6. Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. It's Revelation chapter 11. The kingdoms of this Earth or become the kings of him, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's an awesome song about the second return of Christ. But they begin to sing, praise the Lord, and then they just start going from there. And we'll pick up there next week. But I just want to say we're stepping into some pretty bright areas now, some pretty exciting areas. What's going to happen after Jesus returns? What's he going to do? How's he going to reign? What's going to happen for forever? What's What's it going to be like with Jesus as king? And maybe some questions that we have. We're going to, what's heaven like? We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks as we, we finish up. We'll still tie a few loose ends up with Israel and things like that. But we're going to step into that next week. So I pray it's been helpful. And we we'll look forward to seeing you next time.